In this episode, I talk to one of my longest standing friends, Amin. I actually know Amin since high school, and even back then, it was very clear that Amin is introspective, he likes to think about life, he likes to question things. And if you have listened to any other episodes on this podcast, you can tell that I'm kind of the same. So I was really looking forward to recording this episode, and it definitely did not disappoint. We actually talked about philosophies that we can live our life by, specifically hedonism and stoicism. We talked about what they entail, how we can apply it to our daily life, and I think I learned a lot through this conversation. Halfway through the conversation, Amin actually shares a very personal story of how stoicism has helped him in a specific tragic situation that he had gone through previously. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you enjoy it too. All right. Hello, Hamin. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Payman? I'm doing good. I mean, it's, it's, this is a good excuse to catch up with you and uh, get your thoughts on a couple of different topics. Where um, I want to start, it's probably, you're probably thinking, why, why is he so interested in this? I know that there's a couple of Greek quotes that mean a lot to you that you have always um, kind of lived by and you always say them. What are those quotes and what do they mean to you? I think it's really astounding that you refer to them as Greek quotes I, after I've corrected you <laughs> maybe 10 times in a row that they're not Greek. All they right. have nothing to do with, with the Greek language. <laughs> I so, mean, all right, what are they? Um, I'm interested in a bit of uh, Epicurean and Stoic philosophy, I guess. And there are a couple Latin quotes, which I find interesting fleetingly. However, it seems that they have caught your attention. You have been ruminating on them for the past four or five years, although under the impression that they're Greek quotes, but it's okay. This will be the 11th time I'm correcting you. They're Latin quotes, but all right, why don't we start with the, um, with the first one? What is the quote? What, what actually, what captured your interest in them initially? Like, I think I told you about them maybe like four years ago, and you've been interested in them since then. What, what, yeah. Why were you so interested in them? Um, I think when people really define themselves by a single quote, you know, to the point where they're obsessed with it. Actually, I'm generally interested whenever someone is obsessed with anything, right? Like whenever a human being is obsessed with something, I get very curious. Like, for example, people with rock climbing, it seems like people get obsessed with rock climbing or like jujitsu. Yeah. People get obsessed with jujitsu. I'm always like, yeah. oh, like what's going through their mind and why are they obsessed? So really, okay. that's you could it could be anything. You could have had like a Drake song, Drake uh, quotes, and I would still be very interested. It does nothing. So, to do with so why are you obsessed with them? Because I'm not. <laughs> with what? With the quotes? I mean, I mean, I'm interested in them, but mm -hmm. you're clearly much more. No, I'm, inter in I'm, I'm interested to know why you are interested in those. Oh, quotes, okay. Right? Okay. Yeah, I get it. So I want to know the um, story of what that mean, what they mean to you. Mm -hmm. So why don't we just start talking about a specific one? Okay. Um, well, to give you like some background, they're just, um, they're from two schools of philosophy that were po popular in like antiquity you know, during the classical era, which like was sort of a hobby of mine. And I did a lot of uh, courses in under, you know, in undergrad, how you have to pick electives that are unrelated to your field or whatever that bullshit, like you have to take an English course and things like that. 
So I thought, why am I like wasting my time taking like some stupid psychology course that doesn't interest me at the time I'm doing like uh, pre-med. <clears throat> so uh, I thought I'll just take some like, you know, classic, classic courses, which is classics are like Latin, Greek, ancient history and ancient philosophy. And the uh, philosophies of hedonism and stoicism, I thought were really interesting and um, are like, you can, you can adapt a lot of things in them to help you, especially in today's world. And yeah, those, those two, I guess you came across them and you thought they were interesting at the time as well. Yeah. So, so I actually, so there's like multiple parallel threads that's, I have questions to ask because uh, I'm pretty familiar with Stoicism. You know, I've read a couple of books about it. I, okay. I feel like Stoicism has become more popular. But what are the specific, like, what is the specific quote? Because I always, I always. Uh, you so just to me. stay general a bit. Yeah, like uh, Stoicism and Hedonism were quite popular in the um, like late Hellenistic period, the late period where the uh, Greek civilization was dominant in the Mediterranean and the um, early to mid late Roman um, period. And they're basically um, were adopted by the Romans and became the standard like kind of belief system and way of uh, behavior. Um, they mostly revolve around um, like trying to, trying to understand uh, you, the the things that you go through in your life in a way that they believed was in accordance with nature okay. so they thought that you had to behave this way because um this is the way that the natural world was and if you um kind of participated in a in in your life in a way that was in concordance with it then you will avoid what um you will achieve what hedonists refer to as like uh, ataraxia, which is to be um, to have absence of anxiety and fear, and you know things like that emotionally, not necessarily physically. Hold on, so you're saying stoicism and what's the other one called again? Hedonism. They're hedonism. different, so, but they they're so not hedonism, from the same timeline, are they? You, you, hedonism people, no, they are, and they were conflicting. So you understand what a hedonist is, right? No, actually, I assume I don't. So hedonism is people that seek out pleasure. So they believe that pleasure is good and pain is, is like evil. And they seek out uh, pure pleasure. Isn't that but very it's misunderstood. different than Stoics? Like, I feel like yeah, that's the opposite yeah. end of Stoicism, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, Stoics believe that whether it's pain or pleasure, you should never allow like these to, you should never, you shouldn't fear pain and you shouldn't seek pleasure. Which is like such a weird concept, right? I remember the first time I heard about this, mm -hmm. actually a so-called mentor of mine, actually James Fu, I, I had met with him and he was talking about the fact that he's like, yeah, I try not to get excited about anything and I don't get anything uh I don't try, to, I don't get sad about anything either. And he's like, yeah, have you heard of the hedonic tr treadmill? 
And at the time, I didn't know the concept, you know, the hedonic treadmill and you're like how you're, you're like we as human beings have a certain level of happiness that we always go back to. Mm-hmm. Learning about that topic was just so interesting. And it just makes so much sense when you actually think mm-hmm. about it, right? Like no matter what happens in our life, we just kind of tend to go back to this set point of how we feel. Like even the best things that has happened in your life, you just kind of go back to normal after a while. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I haven't specifically heard of this term, but it sounds um, like it, like it's a, I guess it's a coping mechanism is what you're trying to get at. Like no matter what's happening to you, you will try to, yeah, yeah, that uh, I do see that a lot um, with patients, I guess, but yeah. So back to where we were, hedonism is like trying to avoid pain and seeking pleasure, but it gets misunderstood as like people that just want to go out, do drugs, you know, drink and indulge in their like sensory pleasures. But what it actually was as a philosophy is, um, the belief that you, what you're trying to seek is emotional well-being and emotional uh, pleasure and if you engage in attempts to like maximize your sensory pleasure eventually their absence will cause you pain so you should actually try to avoid um, a lot of pleasures so that you're able to achieve this state of being free from all anxiety so they advocate for like living living your life simply and trying to um, like the pleasures that you seek rather than them being accumulation of um, accumulation of material things and engaging in politics and things like that is things like, you know, a good friendship, um, um, <clears throat> trying, trying to expand your knowledge, you know, like living, living like simply and comfortably. But how is, how, how is that related to Stoicism? It's just two philosophies that you happen to be interested they, they in, are, or do they share anything yeah, in common? Yeah, no, they are, what they share in common is their goals. Their goal is to try for you to accept the, the, the world as it is. That's what they're trying to achieve, right? So the world at the time was an extremely miserable place. You can argue it probably still is, you know, <laughs> like, but particularly back then, you know, you had to deal with disease, poverty, like war, death, like slavery, enslavement, all these terrible and horrible things. And they're kind of like, what they're trying to achieve is they're trying to get you to accept the world as it is. So their goal is the same, but their, um, um, their methods, I guess, are variable. So at the time, both these philosophies were coming up around the same time and like people would be splitted like there would be stoics and there would be hedoic how, how do you say it hedoics hedonists hedonists there will be hedonists and a and particular be a particular branch of hedonism the one that was popular was called epicureanism it was advocated by epicurus all right so this is where i'm gonna sound okay. really dumb so i've heard of so I don't know much about it, but I hear of Epicurus in mm-hmm. Stoic circles. Does he? Yeah, yeah. Look, it's the the semantics are not important. Like this is all. If you take like an intro to philosophy course in in college, this is all part of like the the introduction to the Western canon. They tell you the whole bullshit story about like, 
oh, before in the dark ages of Greece, you had the emergence of like Zeno and these guys, and then you had Socrates and Plato, you know, like that, like story. This is, if you, if you watch like a fucking, uh, sorry for swearing, if you watch a YouTube, um, you know, lecture on intro to philosophy, you will understand all of these different terms and semantics. I don't think they're important for all intents and purposes. We can just say, like, we can just break it down as um, they are within that same realm of like classical philosophies. And while they are very similar, Stoicism and Hedonism, they are they are fundamentally different, but they their their objectives are the same. Is that they advocate for they advocate for acceptance. You know what so, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. The, the reason I was curious to find out the difference is, is so that in my mind, I know what sort of questions to ask, right? Okay. If they're very similar. So, so just to put it simply, the difference is in Stoicism, think of like a very stubborn man that is not interested in whatever is happening externally. So the external stimuli is not important. Whatever is happening to you, good or bad, doesn't matter your response to it, to the situation is what is um, what is important and not even necessarily your physical response, your emotional response is, is the objective, is what we are trying to curate. That is stoicism. Hedonism is the external stimuli is important and you should curate your external stimuli that are affecting your life in such a manner that it will be reflected in your internal response. So you should avoid things that will cause you pain, which include pleasurable things that if you take them away, they will cause you pain in order to create an external environment that will allow you to have an internal response, which is what you are trying to achieve. I see what you're saying. So they are very different, but they share, they share yeah, <clears throat> fundamental. Yes. So now these quotes that you really like, are they from... Uh, one of the school of thoughts? Well, there's a variety of um, of quotes and passages from a lot of writers that are interesting in both of these philosophies. And I think they have a lot of value and you can buy a lot of books these days um, that, you know, there's, there's kind of a reemergence of it. And I think actually, interestingly, I feel like these philosophies reemerge in society whenever society and in the world go is going through a difficult time interestingly so i feel like now that you know um we're facing a lot of challenges ranging from like you know economic inequality and collapse and pandemics and political instability they're becoming a lot more popular which is a bit alarming and interesting but uh yeah there's a variety of interesting things in there for anybody really all right. Now I, I keep asking about the specific quotes, but it looks like you don't want to talk about the specific I'll quotes. I'll tell you what the what so the, the the specific quotes that you were interested in at the time, um, which are like I guess one of them sort of summarizes an important um uh Epicurean pillar of thought is um non fui fui non sum non curo, which is like um they're what Epicurus, it's a direct quote, I think, not a direct quote, but um, one of the ancient historians that was writing about Epicurus's teachings. And what it means is um, your response to your mortality 
should be along the lines of recognizing that there was a time where you didn't exist. And now that you exist, it's you are, you are conscious now when you do exist, but there will be a time where you won't exist anymore. And that you shouldn't be fearful of this because you should remember that. Do you remember like anything before you were born? No, no. Yeah. I, you, I think you that's... can, you can remember that nothingness, right? That like absence of anything, like no yeah. memory. Yeah. yeah. What, what, how do you feel about that period? You have no feelings towards it. <laughs> you have no feelings, right? Like yeah. when you think back at it, like what is, what is your first memory? Um, I, that's actually a good question. I don't know about my first memory, but I have some like distinct uh, memories. I remember once we, this was probably my first actually vivid memory. My family, we were yeah. on a boat mm-hmm. and we're going through like these small rivers in actually in Iran. Mm-hmm. And I remember like mm-hmm. looking up and just being like, this is crazy. I think even yeah. from a young age, I always had admiration admiration for yeah. nature and seeing things in nature. And then I remember <laughs> one other time, like, this is, and it was out of And look at you now, you're a, you're a nature influencer. You're starting <laughs> nature to... influencer. Um, taken, so taken so it, um... hold on, go back to the quote. So the so that was your first memory, right? And yeah. you don't really have anything. It's kind of like darkness before that right yeah. not even darkness just like nothing nothingness yeah but that nothing is do you find that when you think back about this nothing does it like reassure you do you find it calming at all um i don't know i haven't thought about it that much like i don't know if i'll co- find it calming but i just know it's like a fact of life right and i'm very aware that most yeah. likely when i die it's going to be the same thing it's just going to be nothingness right so this, this is what they're saying is like when, if you think back at that moment of nothing where you can't even remember and you can't even, it's not even like, you don't even remember like blackness. Like it was just absolute absence of any kind of perception, right? Eventually that's what your death is. You're, when you die, you're just going to revert back to the state of not existing. And that's not so bad. And that's nothing really to be afraid of or fearful because it's kind of a respite from this uh, constant like being aware and conscious and everything. That's that's a good way of looking at it. But I feel like if you just if you just take the take that quote, there could be you know given that it's one life, there could be argument made that based on that fact alone, based on the mm-hmm. fact that we come from nothingness and we're going to go to nothingness, you should just experience yeah. everything in life. But that's not what this philosophy says, right? That's what this philosophy says. For no, on your... the contrary. No, you're mistaken. If uh, That's not what it's saying. It's not saying like you, you, were, you were dead and you're going to go back to being dead, essentially. And therefore, everything is meaningless and you shouldn't do anything. On the contrary, it's saying like, um because of this it's um you should this should reassure you and your minimal time that you have to experience things you should endeavor to be free from anxiety you should endeavor to reach a state of what they refer to as ataraxia of being completely uh having absence of internal turmoil no matter what like your external um, 
well, not no matter what your external environment, but you should you should arrive at this internal environment of being completely free of pain, of inner pain. And in order to do that, you should try to live your life in a way that you can achieve this. So, so then let's get a bit more practical. What, mm-hmm. what were some of the recommendations at the time and how has that translated to recommendations in the modern life? So they were actually very interesting Epicureans. Um, we have some information about how they used to live during like um, in the Roman Empire, for example, during the reign of um, Antoninus Pius. And um, like these guys advocated for living simply, avoiding, like I said, like you might think a hedonist um, sounds like a guy who goes out and just indulges in everything, food, wine, you know, everything and any kind of sensory pleasure. But what these guys actually did is they were negative hedonists. So they avoided all these things. They lived very simply in like gardens. They wore very simple like cloth and um, they valued things like friendship over um, like becoming like, you know, this back then it was a very um, kind of calculating and malicious world where you had to you know uh scheme politically and get involved and you know establish relationships in order to get ahead a lot of um the advocates the noble advocates of epicureanism that's how we know about it because they're the ones that wrote down histories uh would instead remove themselves entirely from like the political system retreat and become reclusive and live in like gardens with like simple foods of like cheeses and fruits and sit around with their friends and just talk about life and talk about philosophy and uh, live live like a very happy and simple quiet life rather than sounds like a really happy quiet life (laughs) like even though like you know it sounds really nice it does it but at the same time you have to think about like superficially it sounds like kind of i'm very uh, while i find it really interesting i'm always skeptical of like these extremes extreme behaviors it wasn't extreme and they were seen as extreme uh people of like retreating entirely from society you have to look at what's driving these people to actually um do like become recluses like that and it's the fact that their their societies were damaged and broken to begin with that's what's driving them to like engage in this level of uh behavior what do you mean by societies were damaged already like so nobody nobody worked or no so nobody is retreating into a garden to live wearing loincloths and eating like you know, bread and cheese for the rest of their life. If everything is going fine in the world, like this is, this was a response to extreme, like cruelty and inequality and warfare and disease. At the time there was the Antonine plague spreading around. And you know what I mean? I I understand what you mean, but like, if you look at it, the modern world, right? Like, I think, I don't know, tell me what you think of this example, right? So we have Mm -hmm. like, in the modern world, the capitalist world that we have, it's like mm-hmm. you know, the status game is a very big game that gets played, yeah. right? Um, precisely. Precisely, right? So the status game is a very big game that gets played. But then you have these hippies or like people mm-hmm. who just remove themselves from society. 
yeah it's not necessarily because the world is so cruel but they just think the fundamental way of living is wrong right so it's not necessarily because everyone this is is where this is where i disagree with you is so these people running away to india to join an ashram or buying a jordan peterson book you know or gary gary watching gary vanyarchuk videos they're trying to find something to compensate for the lack of um the lack the the inability of anything really in their lives to provide them with any kind of meaning or fulfillment so the lack of fulfillment is driving them to seek seek an answer elsewhere and oftentimes uh seeking like extreme uh modes of behavior in order to achieve anything to to kind of either anesthetize their misery or to uh try to try to like abandon this internal turmoil that they have so What's... they'll run away to like an ashram in india or they'll like you know join the proud boys <laughs> i mean i think you you're you're talking about many different behaviors right I, i don't know if it would be as simple as that to find a common ground between all of them but like even if you think of any of these modern modern day whatever uh, gurus right yeah that, that have a lot of following which all of us like every human being looks at certain <laughs> certain ones and is like i cannot believe this like this is a scam right but then we mm-hmm. all have different views of the ones where we kind of you know we understand them and we think they're they're doing it good in the world and then there's the, the rest of them that you're like I cannot believe like James Cardone or whatever his name is like I cannot believe that guy has such a big following I think he's I think the negative. fundamental the fundamental what you're saying I don't think what I'm saying is like um I think the fundamental drive to try to fill this void with one of these insert whatever guru is driven by the fact that um life is not getting better right now in our society it's getting worse and these issues have been compounding for several decades and people are not finding any kind of fulfillment in their lives as a result of this and this is not too dissimilar to the ancient roman in the 2nd century who abandoned his life in order to become an epicurean and live in a garden and talk about philosophy with his friends the forces that have driven this decision are fundamentally the same back then and today is what yeah, i'm completely, saying yeah completely okay i i actually completely agree with you and that was the argument i was trying to make but yeah i completely agree yeah. with you so so that's interesting right but but mm-hmm. we still have this negative view towards someone who's like i don't know insert a name let's just choose a name tony robbins right like if yeah. you see someone who's yeah. a devotes tony robbins fan i yeah. would like you know especially tony robbins right because he charges like $10,000 for his like 3 day seminar mm-hmm. right like in my yeah. eye that's definitely a rent seeking behavior where he's taking more value in mm-hmm. than he's providing mm-hmm. because most of the mm-hmm. people who go to a seminar are people who are really not doing good financially right like that $10,000 mm-hmm. can be used in many better ways but mm-hmm. um but if you look at it like yeah so but in someone's eye you can imagine that there is a person out there where they believe Tony Robbins even though they have paid $10,000 for his seminar yeah. has been a net yeah. positive impact for their life right how is that different than like us fault talking about stoicism right like we talk about Marcus okay. Aurelius 100% 100% yeah. I'll tell you why 
Um, Tony Robbins is new and those philosophies are um, old. So it's like, it's kind of a tied, tried and tested product that has 2000 years of customer reviews versus <laughs> this like new bullshit, you know, like used car salesman trying to sell you like magical snake oil, trying to tell you, you know, just, just, just go out and hustle and be positive, you know, like insert sentiment here that absolutely means nothing. It's not as like, it's definitely not as sophisticated and, um, and complex, which is not necessarily like, it doesn't necessarily make like stoicism and Epicureanism superior to like maybe a new emerging philosophy, but it's not necessarily like, I wouldn't say it's anywhere comp, like, like you said, it sounds like there's a lot of red flags that this guru or whatever is, has other incentives for trying to advocate for these philosophies that he's trying to impart, right? Whereas this other philosophy has been around for several thousands of years and is a natural, has was developed as a response to people actually really trying to figure out like what, how the world works. Like back then, you know, they didn't know anything. They were um, completely just trying to kind of figure out what, what the true nature of like the world and the human psychology is like, rather than um, just trying to make a quick buck. I think um, the incentivization and how people are doing it, you know what I mean? Like, it's a yeah, hard yeah, but what, I'm to, what I'm trying to get on is I'm not saying, oh, no, don't don't even bother with Tony Robbins. Go straight to stoicism or uh, hedonism. What I'm saying is the impetus that's driving you towards either of those, you should recognize that. You should recognize that emptiness in your life and uh, try not to rely too heavily on one school of thought to kind of be the answer to everything that is going wrong with your life. And I think I, I, and I think that's a process that everyone has to go through, right? Because we as human beings are very different, different messages. Because at the end of the day, what matters is how you feel and how your life improves subjectively to you, right? Because your life is like whatever, it's 90 years or it's 80 years or whatever it may be. At the, at, I, I believe fundamentally what matters is the experience that you had going through that life, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean it's a sel in a selfish way. Like if you help a lot of people and you have a great experience helping other people, that's, that's still your experience. And that's all that matters, right? So if someone is saying an old message in a modern way or they have a new message, as long as it's helping you, that's all that matters. And I think everyone should just explore these different avenues and see what resonates with them. Oh, well, thank you for defining the meaning of life payment. I think we're done here. I think you have answered the question, you know, the, the great question. You know, get, get in contact with uh, the, um, the Karolinska Institute. I think you might have a Nobel Prize in there for you, you know, figuring out. No, but thank you for why, that. Do, do you think that's, I mean, don't, I don't you know. think? Not really. Why not? I mean, I like, think. 
per, perhaps personally, yes, I would agree. I think you should um, try to find meaning in your life. And if you live a very uh, meaningful and fulfilling life, then that is enough. But I don't think that that's the actual, like, uh, necessarily, like, the, the, the one truth. This is how you should proceed, you know, this is what you should do. I mean, I, I don't know. Lately, this has come to my mind a lot. It's, it's like, you know, I don't know what has happened. I don't know why we ended up on this earth. I don't know why I'm alive. I don't know how, like, mm-hmm. randomly I was born. But it's like the fundamentals of the game that I know is there was nothingness before. There'll probably be nothingness in the future. And I have this many years. And like, I should just experience as much of life as possible, right? Like, in every sense. I mean, like, in terms of, like, having a loving family in terms of seeing nature, in terms of exploring more, right? And I, I think those are the things that uh, attract me generally. It's just like, and that's what like part of the reason why I enjoy this podcast, right? Because why mm-hmm. like you and I, for example, have known each other for such a long time, right? But mm-hmm. we barely ever just sit down and talk like this. And this podcast is just an excuse for me to reach out mm-hmm. to people that I find interesting and just really explore ideas. And like, that is so fun in my head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i think a big part of yeah i don't know those are my thoughts yeah so what what you what you're you're right and this is what um they're advocating for is what what we're doing now is um essentially what epicureanism is about it's just talking about things and this in order to like this pursuit of trying to understand is what they believe will make you truly happy and make you free of anxiety internally rather than, um, you know, trying to pursue other avenues that rather than make you uh, more content, they will, um, they will actually exacerbate all of the negative emotions you have internally. But what I'm trying to say is, what you're saying is, is true, is fully valid is, um, you're trying to broaden your experiences, emotional, you know, connection with other uh, humans and people. And uh, um, I don't know about your nature. I don't know where you're getting with that. I think you're just a nature influencer. But yeah, sure. Being at one with nature is actually something they advocate for. But what I'm saying is um, the hedonists believe that the objective is to be free of pain and to be like internally docile and content. I think the, that fundamental premise is not necessarily true. We have no evidence to suggest that, you know, that this is the way to live your life, you know, and this is the more stoic attitude is it doesn't matter. Like you shouldn't try to, your life doesn't necessarily have to be good. You don't necessarily need to live a good life. You can live a miserable life filled with nothing but pain and suffering, but your response to it is what truly matters. And that may have like a bit that a bit more um, that might be more kind of like uh, critical and advanced, I think, in my opinion. No, I, I mean, I think that is. Uh, so are you familiar with Nassim Talib? I talk about him all the time. I don't, are you no. familiar with him? No. So he's this Lebanese. I'll just give it one minute background on him he's this Lebanese uh philosopher writer who wrote the Mm -hmm. book Black Swan I'm not sure if you have listened to anything finance related they refer to the term Black Swan they said like the pandemic Mm -hmm. was a Black Swan or um, Mm -hmm. 9-11 was a Black Swan 
So he is the one who came up with that term. And the idea is that black, for the longest time, we always thought that swans are white. And then apparently they found a black swan in, in um, Australia. And then it was yeah, like, oh, in Perth. In Perth, yeah. So his mm -hmm. whole concept is that black swans are events that cannot be predicted and they have a huge impact on our future as humanity, right? And one mm -hmm. of his arguments for stoicism and why stoicism is so important is because in our lives, we, we have had the experience, right? And this is what Jordan mm -hmm. Peterson says about chaos and order, right? You've had, you've been in, you're, all right, just, just, just lesson, just lesson. With people can't see, I'm smashing my <laughs> fucking hand on my forehead. No, no, but, but it makes Please sense, continue. right? Like you have, you have had moments in your life while everything has been going to how you want it to go, right? You remember, mm -hmm. like, we all have had these moments in our lives. Everything mm -hmm. is going well. And then all of a sudden you hear of something or something happens that is just so unexpected that you didn't expect. And it has such an outsized impact on your life, whether positive or negative. And the stoic way of living allows you to withstand those moments more. Exactly. Which is actually the most important moments, right? Because you, like, you have met a lot of people, like we all have gone through it where, like when those events happen that are unexpected, people like just completely lose it or like they just become someone different or just get extremely depressed and can never come back. So I think that is, that's why stoicism is such a novel way of living. So this is another quote um, from Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, who was an emperor, by the way, in the second century AD, who was an extreme believer in stoicism, was obsessed with it and would write about it in his private diary every night. Um, you know, anybody that's watched Gladiator, he's a nice old man you know, with the white hair, he's a cute guy, he's a good guy. Um, he actually was in real life. He, he was obsessed with like actually being a good leader and trying to um, improve the lives of everybody under him. And he would be so anxious at night, he would write in his diary about these stoic philosophies and ideas. And he never meant for it to be published. His slave published it after he died. And a quote in it is, um, there is um, nothing ever happens to anyone which they are not fitted by nature to bear. So this is like a very, uh, like whatever, integral part of um, stoicism as according to him. And they believe no matter what happens to you, it's, they're not saying necessarily that you'll be able, you be able to bear it physically. But no matter what happens to you, you have the ability to um, bear it emotionally and to respond to it emotionally in a way that will relieve you of pain. So that's, man, it's, 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 it's fascinating. Eh? The, the, how, I got, how I got into stoicism was Ryan Holiday, mm -hmm. which I'm sure you've, I don't know what you think of him. But I think he has done a, he has done a net positive for the world because he brought these philosophies to the modern world. And he, you know, he, he doesn't even add his own ideas. He just like tries to make those ideas more readable and more modern for modern people to consume. Um, so do you mind talking personally about your personal life? I mean, to the extent that you're comfortable talking about, like how you have implemented some of these philosophies in your own, own life or like what your mindset is due to the fact things that you learned through these two schools of thoughts? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, like I said, I think you shouldn't really rely. I mean, I don't personally think that 
you should seek out these things as an answer. I don't think there's any one answer. And I think every person is different and what they decide they want their experience to be is different. Like I'm not this, this entire thing, what I'm trying to say, although super interesting and very helpful. And I found it personally helpful. I don't think necessarily stoicism is the answer for everybody. Like to apply it rigidly to your life. This is, I am a stoic and this is how I live my life. I approach everything through a lens of stoicism. I don't think you should do that. You should incorporate some aspects, but you should try to co-opt it into your own worldview and what you're trying to seek. But personally for me, um, so I am right now, I'm a surgical resident uh, doing my surgical training uh, here in Melbourne at one of the uh, major metropolitan hospitals with like, um, in, in the Western suburbs, we have like the biggest catchment area, but we have a lot of problems with, um, the community that we service. They have a lot of, um, um, it's, it's quite like, uh, it's a population that is more, more disadvantaged economically. You know, they have socioeconomic, uh, problems that affects, that affect their health. Socioeconomic determinants of health are actually like some of the major things that drive a lot of the problems that we see present. And, um, you know, when, when you have, when you're economically disadvantaged, you have bigger problems like obesity, um, high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, smoking, cancer, and like um, ment mental health difficulties that exacerbate all the other problems that you have. And a lot of the times the work can be like really, stressful and difficult you can have high patient loads and you have to deal with a lot of stressful situations and you have to try to um sometimes you're trying to help a patient um doing a surgery or a procedure and they don't have a good outcome and uh you know uh, you, you've watched Grey's Anatomy and all these bullshit medical shows you know about all the you, you can you can imagine the 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 problems and Stoicism is very helpful, I thought I found, um, because it allows you to, in this setting, it allows you to kind of um, react appropriately to something that could be very like emotionally distressing or personally like stressful to you in this situation. It could like a lot of, you know, doctor burnout is a huge thing. It's not necessarily like talked about all the time, but a lot of my colleagues um, have like at times found it like very difficult to cope with a lot of hard situations. And I found that stoicism is helpful for me from that aspect. And how, I mean, tactically, how does that play out? Because you <laughs> constantly are thinking about the worst scenario. Are you very aware of the things that you control and things that are outside of your control? What are the specific thoughts that help you to deal with these stressful situations? Well, no, so so like um, it's not a it's not trying to predict it. It's when sometimes you have to recognize that as a doctor, you're really trying to. Doctors are very um, like I guess their ego makes them think that. Uh, like, you know, I'm going to help, especially like initially, you're like, I'm going to help everybody. I'm going to fix everyone. I'm going to, you know, I can, I can do it. But like, it's not the way nature works. You know, nature doesn't, doesn't care or give a shit about like your, 
your pretensions. And there are a lot of things that will happen to your patient that are out of your control. And a lot of outcomes that um, you didn't anticipate will all of a sudden, like just quickly, they'll deteriorate and everything will go to shit and you have to respond quickly. And oftentimes your response is like inefficient and um, the patient will deteriorate and die before your eyes. And that, that can be like, that's one example that can be very distressing. And uh, how you respond to that is going to um, like determine how like you carry yourself forward in the future because you can't get like hung up on every single situation like that where you had like a negative outcome where the patient died. You can't like just break down emotionally. You have to keep it moving. You have other patients and you have to attend to them and you have to like, it's like part of the job. But if you don't, um, if, if it like, if you don't address it uh, internal, like if you don't address that internal emotional turmoil in a healthy way, if you just shrug it under the rug, the rug in such a stressful job, there are a lot of other things ahead that if you don't address that, it will come back to bite you later on in the future. This is, this is, well, first of all, thank you for sharing that because it, it, I mean, it, I can't, I can't even imagine, right. I can't even imagine how stressful that is, but I can pretend mm. to know how stressful that is, but I think it's very, it's very relatable to like, there's aspects of it that can apply to anyone's life. Right. Because you go through things yeah. that, that you think were kind of your, so what's like, is, is the comfort in your head that like I did everything that I was supposed to do or everything that, that I could have done from my capability, the outcomes is, you know, like the whole concept of like, what is the circle that you have control over? And what is No, the it's not, you're... it's not like, it's not like trying to, I'll give you an example. And this is a specific example, but you're not trying to shrug off responsibility necessarily. You're not trying to say, um, it wasn't my fault. I did everything I could and this happened anyway. So like it, it is not your fault in a way. And that is true. You did do everything, but um, you could have done more always like what you didn't know. And uh, <clears throat> you're not trying to necessarily shrug responsibility for what happened and to uh, achieve emotional um, uh, ataraxia that way. A specific example is one time I had a patient while I was on my um, sur general surgical rotation. Um, let's say 80 year old man presented to the emergency department with a one week history of constipation, abdominal distension and generalized abdominal tenderness. Um, medical history is unremarkable, includes some hypertension um, gastroesophageal reflux disease, um, a little bit of type two diabetes, um, mild, uh, uh, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, nothing too crazy for an eight year old, you know, previously, otherwise well and healthy, fully independent. So this guy comes in one week of constipation. He just wants some, some kind of laxative or, or something to open his bowels. He's just in a bit of pain, but he's not distressed. He's not thinking too much of it or something. Um, at the same time, his wife was having an elective uh, total knee replacement at a different hospital across town. 
Um, he waited in the emergency department for several hours and there was a delay in getting a CT scan of his abdomen. Um, once we actually got a CT scan of his abdomen, it showed that he had a massive tumor in his colon that was um, in his distal end of his colon. So if you imagine the tumor, it's causing a bowel obstruction and everything upstream of that is kind of becoming obstructed and bloated in his intestines. And when we saw um, that on the scan, um, my registrar and I, who was like my superior, we immediately like rushed to get him into emergency surgery so that we can like relieve some of the, the pressure because if you don't, you're at risk of perforation of your bowel. While we were on our way running into his room to get him into surgery, he perforated and just started screaming, started dropping his blood pressure, started becoming tachycardic. Obviously all the contents of his gut started um, spilling into like of his bowel were in his like peritoneum at this moment. He's gonna become septic in an 80 year old with like all these medical conditions he was like, basically, that was it. That's all she wrote. He was going to die. The option is we could try to do an emergency surgery to try to cut out that loop of bowel, try to do a wash up, you know, try to do what we can. But we had a discussion with him um, and uh, <clears throat> he was in so much pain, he opted to be palliated. So he just wanted us to let him die. But he wanted to speak to his wife, who they've been married for 60 years. She's not, she can't even come see him because she's having a knee replacement in another hospital. And um, I was the one that actually called her. So I tracked her down. So I called the other hospital, tried to get into her room. And I called her and I was, you know, speaking to her. Hi, ma'am. My name is, I mean, I'm one of the surgical doctors at this hospital. And um, your uh, husband and like I explained to her the story and she wasn't registering with her. she was like no he just had a little bit of a tummy ache he's just like a bit constipated you know she cannot believe that this is like can you imagine how devastating that is and uh, she can't even see him in their last moments like after you know millennia of marriage it was shattering it was like heartbreaking and um, she spoke to him on the phone said their goodbyes you know at least they got that at the very least and this is with COVID so you can't even do cross hospital transports or anything like that like it's out of the question and it was just devastating and then like <clears throat> um they both just like you know I'm not gonna go through the surgery you know I'm just gonna like just let me die he's in a lot of pain so we gave him a syringe driver which has like morphine in it goes in the skin and like basically puts you to sleep so that you can die and as I'm like literally attaching the syringe driver, it just like died. And I was like, oh God, that hurt. Um, so that's like a situation where if you like don't, that's obviously very emotionally distressing, you know, just being like, you will always try to um, think about um the situation in a personal in a personal light, like try to picture their their pain, what they just went through. Imagine like your parents going through that, or you going through that with your partner, not being able to like say goodbye. It's going to cause you a lot of distress emotionally. But if you approach that situation in a from like a stoic perspective, it can actually be quite healthy.
Well, that is a that is a crazy story. That's a, damn like just hearing it is is hard to hard to listen to it right especially if if you just mm -hmm. think you're going to the hospital for something very normal and the next thing you know yeah. you're deciding that you you're don't dead. want to, that is yeah so the things that will distress you and that that distress me in that situation is like could we have done the ct scan sooner before like before he had a perforation could we have um somehow like um, identified this earlier when he had come in, you know, could he be alive? This is a question. So are the thoughts that like, yeah, that, that can drive you crazy. Like, you know, yeah, the typical thing, I don't know if you, if you know of any stories like this, but like two young men either on a motorcycle or on like driving and they get to the accident and like the best friend dies and the person driving survives. Like people don't recover from that. And you can imagine, right? survival guilt is a different thing we're not talking about survival yeah. guilt we're talking about like um this is a, this is like an example of of things that you think of that i would think of like personally yeah. where if um if it's not if you kind of just shrug it off there's there's multiple ways to approach it you can either um abandon responsibility and say well we did everything and you know what are you going to do and move on which uh, is not necessarily um, invalid, but I think um, ra being more contemplative about it and thinking about it from the perspective that that was quite terrible what happened, but um, rather than like allowing it to uh, hamper me like emotionally and to impact my performance in my duties, like my future duties, I'm actually going to subsume it into my like emotional repertoire and let it reflect on it and let it like um, use it use it in a in a way that's actually going to help me rather than hinder me. That's a that's a great example, man. And I I, I don't think it's the abandonment of responsibility, right? Like if you say, I think it's a healthy thought for you to have to know that you have you did everything that you could possibly do right because obviously if this no, but happened, we didn't <clears throat> but we but didn't given necessarily the information that you do did, everything. you had to but there there were systemic problems with the healthcare system that system, contributed yeah. to this man to this man's like untimely demise his delay in the emergency department having inadequate access to ct scanners you know the delay in the referral process the fact that which nobody is individually like responsible to blame. For, yeah. it's, nobody is responsible for it. It's just, we are not, we have to reconcile like the uh, reality that the, we're not as good as we think we are necessarily. Like the, the medical system has a lot of room for improvement and the, um, the way that we approach perhaps this kind of presentation or this kind of patient, like, you, you know, you can always improve it and, this could have potentially like been avoided maybe. So do you, like, is this, a, have you talked about this to, to anyone? Is this something you have talked? Oh, no, not really. This is just one example. There are maybe like a million others. This is one of the, maybe even like, so horrible things like that. This wasn't even like necessarily that um, confronting. There were a lot of like, 
there are a lot of things that will happen that perhaps are much more horrible than that. So this is Damn, like I should talk kind of an almost everyday occurrence. That's crazy. I don't even know how to recover from that conversation. How, how can we talk about anything else after <laughs> such a story, right? I, I should talk to my mom about it. I, I haven't, I've been having really good conversation with my mom, actually, just yeah. through COVID, you know. Yeah. She, she kind of has nothing to do. I don't have anything to do, so we just get on a FaceTime and talk for a long time. Mm. So, yeah. all right, how do we go? I don't, I, I don't know where to go from here. We were talking about stoicism. And how stoicism? Yeah, can so help that's you. a horrible, that's a horrible, horrible situation. Personally, where stoicism can help you. Yeah, yeah. So, have you read meditations? Parts of it. Yeah, it's a it's a crazy thing because actually, in the last episode, I was talking to my friend Jeff, and he was saying, you know, like when you look at the when you look at historical records, it's very rare for you to find people describe how they feel about things, right? Like mm -hmm. they just describe the events that took place. So Marcus Aurelius says meditation like really stands out even in that aspect that he's like one of yeah. the few people that talks about his feelings. We, we don't have to, we don't have to like recount and cry about how it's like, oh my God, I can't believe it. It got published. He's talking about his, yeah, it, it's yeah. like a known thing. It is, it is rare. But it's a, it's a, it's a nice thing though. I think it's like a gem yeah. that you can you can it's a very good book it's a yeah. very good book and it's very useful for the problem is like you were saying a lot of people are trying to find inspiration in very low quality trash gurus tony, Ro tony robbins at least i think jordan peterson all of these kind of like used car salesmen um when you have a lot of um things available to you that are you know 2000 year 2000 years of positive reviews like but at the same time you still shouldn't like use it as your single defining like philosophy that you use for everything in every situation yeah so i i, I think i completely agree with you right like this whole used car salesman thing but i think we all have different perspectives of it again i i'm sure there's a group of people that love tony robbins that will stand by him are there doesn't any mean modern, right. I know it doesn't mean they're right, right? Doesn't mean they're right, but doesn't mean we're right. Like there's no way to. But I guess we're they, not they, trying to say we're right. We're trying to, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, we're trying to find out what works if for this, us. If there's anything like uh, this whole conversation is that it's not, this is not like the right way. This like can work. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the, best, that's the best way of looking at it, right? Is there, is there, I'm, I'm just curious, is there any of these modern so-called philosophers that you like? Um, modern philosophers? Like who, oh, are, like who are some public intellectuals that whose work you follow, who talk about no, life? Noam, Noam Chomsky, of course, is I consider probably the most important um, intellectual in terms of how I think of the world and how I approach, like, it's kind of like the foundation, my foundation for my, uh, the way that I view the world politically, um, philosophically, and like um, intellectually, it's probably the most important. And, and is there a specific, like, does he have a specific thesis? Does he have a single theme? Would you be able to describe that thesis or theme? Uh, you're talking you're talking about the most important like thinker alive who has a career spanning like so it's impossible <laughs> eight, you eight can't years. Do no you can you can 
but he has, he's so like, he's written hundreds of books and like trying to distill it all. I can distill like maybe the, the broad strokes, but it doesn't, he's still worthy of like, it's not going to do it any justice. But um, what I think I like about um, what is important to me from his work is his empath empathic approach to the way he like, he sees the world and rightly like um, analyzes it from like the perspective of the how the powerful basically um, exploit and disenfranchise the majority of the population. So he um, is effective at showing how like um, the inefficiencies of the ruling class result in a lot of misery, pain and suffering for the, the, the working class. And it's not necessarily like um, the most like effective way to proceed. Okay, so I, I think that's a very good way of summarizing it. Is there a specific, like I, I'm the perfect example, right? So if anyone else is listening, if they were curious to learn more is there a specific book, article, or interview, or something that you would recommend that would be a good gateway to to learning more um, about his philosophy? His most important seminal, like one of his most uh, referenced and important like books is um, like Manufacturing Consent. People throw that around all the time. Everybody really knows about that book. Talks about how he, well he's a linguist, right? He's he's the father of modern linguistics, and his work essentially like redefined the whole field and was integral in the technological revolution because he was uh, able to come out with like mathematical theories of language that allowed its uh, translation into like computer code. So he was like responsible in a way for the proliferation of computer technology when he was uh, working in, in, the, in the labs in MIT. Um, and he, his book, Manufacturing Consent, is about like um, how the media manipulates public opinion by creating this manufactured consent to allow the um, aristocracy to wage endless wars, um, pillage the public treasury, and like, in basically enslave the population in this like neo corporatist like feudal society almost so okay that's that's very interesting i'll check it out if you would recommend i start with that too right like you know me pretty well you think that would be the book i should start with i think you can you can watch some of his lectures on youtube it might be a bit faster if you're pressed for time which might give you a more general idea yeah. as well about his other works you know you will never yeah. run out of things to watch from him um who else I don't necessarily like watch a lot of philosophers um, like talk. I don't necessarily watch like or try to read a lot of um, modern philosophers. Like I said, I'll, I'll I've, I have a very basic and superficial uh, like um, introduction to classical philosophy and a bit of like uh like philosophy from um you know um the enlightenment and things like that and throughout history but it's not necessarily like 
I'm not a philosophy student by any stretch or an expert or anything like that. It's all like, um, I guess, slightly superficial. I'm more kind of interested in um, more, more like relevant and technical and uh, like uh, books and speakers like Chris Hedges, for example, who's a reporter that um, used to work for the New York Times and was fired because of his um, advocacy against the war in Iraq and then wrote like um, uh, really, um, really amazing books about how um, like trends in, in capitalist societies and how they contribute to a lot of the problems we have. Like I'm more interested in like things like that. I'd rather have like my boots in the ground. That's a quote, like rather have your boots in the mud than your head in the clouds. Wow, that, that is a good quote. You know, I mean? and you know this, this might be ignorant, but I think every Palestinian descendant that I meet, um, they are, I, I guess by definition, due to the circumstances that your ancestors or your parents went through, political, Palestinians seem so interested in political aspects which would make sense, right? Because it has had such a huge impact on your life, on your parents' life. Um, like, even if you think of most of the Palestinians we had in, in school, right? They were just very interested in politics. Hmm. Yeah, That's well, you, it's, it's like, it's more interest. Politics is more interested in you. Feel, yeah, exactly. You have no choice. Yeah, you have to, <laughs> you have to pay attention to it. Right? Yeah. You, you ought to be as well. You're, uh, you're Iranian. I know, and, yeah. Uh, you know the the crimes that have been committed against Iran are not are not too dissimilar to those committed against Palestinians or Iraqis or Yemenis or um, yeah. Indonesians, the Vietnam, like anybody really. Um, it's just that you've chosen to. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you've chosen to be an ignorant and <laughs> neglectful all right we said no personal attacks all right that was one no, of I'm the kidding. rules of it no. um so uh yeah like you know the you as an iranian i'm sure can also relate to a lot of um yeah. like difficulties you've had to go through that are the result of these these issues um, yeah. you know it's, it's interesting for us like i think for any sort of immigrant that comes to the first world first world it's just you just really understand how much how much people take for granted right like i think people in the first world don't even understand like a lot of the basic things that that are in place that they don't have to worry about well it's not it's not that they don't understand they don't understand on purpose for a specific reason and that's what like manufacturing consent is about they are purposefully their attention and um, consent is redirected um, by the ruling caste in order to diminish their ability to organize and to interrupt the broader strategy that these demons want to employ and enforce onto the world. So the way that they successfully redirect this attention is to... Um, create divides between them and immigrants to try to propagandize them to um, 
to shift the blame for all the um, misery and emptiness that they're experiencing onto like um, appealing to natural instincts that humans have to blame the other. So they will purposefully redirect this frustration and um, create a block for them to empathize with immigrants, with foreigners, um, with um, ethnic minorities in their own countries. It's not like they are inherently, there are two things. So for starters, they're not experiencing your difficulties that you're going through. And this is very difficult for humans, like for anybody that studies neuroscience or psychology. Um, it's difficult to empathize with somebody when you have uh, no experience, not even anything um, close to that kind of like experience of pain. It's very difficult for you to understand what somebody with like um, stage four pancreatic cancer is going through. If you know nothing about it, if you don't know anybody that's ever had it and you're fully like healthy and things like that, it's very difficult for you to understand what um, a black uh, person living in Camden, New Jersey is going through. If you are um, like well off and, um, you know, I don't, I don't wanna play into the identity politics trope. I think it's actually rather more economical that divides people. So if you're well off, you're less likely to be able to empathize with these people to start off with, without anything, without anybody interfering with your um, propagandizing you through media or anything like that, just by the fact, by virtue that you're not, uh, don't have the same kind of barriers and problems. It's, it's like you don't have the fundamental understanding, you know, like there's like, there's no foundation for you to even compare your experiences, yeah. right? Yeah, to start off with. So that's very difficult for you to achieve empathy which I think is the, the main um, problem that is kind of like making these people obtuse to the, to the difficulties of immigrants. And then there's this, the other factor of you have these people that are constantly like assaulting you. That's an assault nonstop <laughs> through like programming and, and so messaging and um, obfuscation and redirection to try to trick you into um, tacitly approving policies that are really quite horrendous oftentimes. Um, and Oliver Stone actually has an amazing uh, documentary about the history of the United States in it. There's something that I really liked about, um, he talks about the two US presidents that were the most, that people view as the most like, um, and the view in a more positive light, uh, like Franklin Delano Roosevelt and uh, JFK, <clears throat> FDR, obviously, for those who don't know, was responsible for fixing America after the Great Depression by instituting the New Deal, which was an economic policy that allowed the working class who were suffering a lot because of the bankers destroying the economy in 1929. Um, it gave them a lot of... Um, uh, opportunity to restart the economy and work. And uh, JFK obviously was assassinated, wink, wink, by uh, not Lee Harvey Oswald, but rather people, modern um, historians and scholars think the corroboration between the various military and intelligence services because he wanted to end the war in Vietnam. 
And what Oliver Stone is saying is these two leaders were able to be more human and humanitarian because they were suffering themselves. So Franklin Delano Roosevelt had polio and had severe like uh, um, musculoskeletal paralysis as a result of his disease, suffered from a lot of poor health, despite the fact that he was actually extremely rich. He was from the aristocracy, FDR, and the rich hated him because they considered him a traitor to, their, to his class. But he was able to empathize with the poor, according to Stone, because he had the suffering. And JFK <clears throat> had Addison's disease. And uh, as a result of his steroid treatments, had uh, severe uh, bone mineral density like um, osteo, um, osteoporosis, problems with his health, blood pressure. He had addiction to alcohol and drugs and, uh, and women and was involved with, or he had, he had a lot of like uh, internal um, like problems with addiction and depression and problems with his Addison's disease. So this suffering made him more empathetic towards minorities, towards the Vietnamese and wanting to end the wars and things like that. Yeah, man, empathy, empathy is such an important thing. I think, you know, it's like, this is a tangent, but um, I won't name names, I'll anonymize this. But one of our mutual friends from uh, Dubai uh, had visited me in, in Vancouver and you know, like you see homeless people around here, right? And I think the way they they treated a homeless person, as in like, you know, why don't you just go get a job was just such like, I had such a repulsive reaction to their reaction of how they treated a homeless person. And you're right, right? Like, I think that's a prime example of someone who just doesn't even have the basic foundation of understanding the struggles of a poor person because they grew up in like, a rich family they've never had to worry about money and so empathy is a very big thing man i think we should all just be more empathetic for each other it's like and i know you love well, these one-liners uh, you <laughs> <laughs> yeah no what, what you're talking about is what's funny is that situation you know this person you're referring to have probably never had to get a job themselves their in their entire life everything was kind of organized for them with uh, nepotism and whatnot, but it's not necessarily what I'm trying to say that they are inherently bad people. They just don't have the, the mechanism to empathize because of the things we talked about. I completely agree. I'm not saying they're, they're, they're inherently a bad But they're also too. bad people. No, I'm just kidding. No, but, but it's just, they, they, and that's something I have realized, right? Like, and I think once you, once you realize that actually a lot of the interpersonal problems that you have with other people go away, right? Like most of the fights that you have, whether it's like in a relationship or with your close friends or with anything, is just because you don't even understand the, their, the other person's perspective completely, you know? We just take the, you know what I mean? Like there could be a thousand reasons why the other person reacted this way. We just assume it's the worst thing, right? They did this because they think I'm stupid or they didn't respect me or they didn't respect the fact... Where it's, it's like, you know, mm -hmm. like it's, it's either a cultural issue or it's like they just weren't thinking about it. And, and once, once you change your frame of mind to that, to like really trying to understand anytime you have this like, I don't know why my girlfriend didn't do this or I don't know like why my brother did. Like you just try to understand before accusing. It's a very helpful thing. Um. 100%, but uh, like we said, it's extremely difficult to completely put yourself 
um, to see somebody else's emotional perspective. So what can it's we do? Like, what are, what are some things that we can do in order to <clears throat> enable us to, do, to be able to do that more effectively? It's almost, I mean, there, it's obviously a spectrum, right? There are people that, I mean, um, somebody I listen to refers to them as like too far gone. So there, there's no, they've already become so rigid in their frame, in their way of thinking and their inability to connect with certain people. It's already gone, you know, like, but some people will are still amenable to changing. Um, but people are inherently selfish, right? So um, they're self-centered. Everybody's self-obsessed, especially these days with social media and uh, um, this new emerging culture of like individualism. Everybody's so self-centered and self-obsessed and um, just convinced that they are um, they are this unique occurrence that is never going to be repeated again and their experiences are valid and everything like that. So it's really hard. Um, but the way to do it, I think, is to uh, try to frame it in a way that people will be able to make, um, people will be able to relate with their own personal experiences. Um, yeah. to try to demonstrate to them that the same, perhaps the same thing that is causing frustration in their life is also the thing that is responsible for um, the oppression or disenfranchisement or um, exploitation of somebody else. So making that connection personally towards somebody is what helps them yeah. you know, make, make that it, leap. It might be hard, but like, yeah, giving examples and like pushing it to limits, you know what I mean? Like if you, yeah, mm -hmm. something that, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. Do you, this is a random thing, but do you, uh, do you know the blog Wait But Why? No. Oh my God, you're going to love this. I'll send What's you some articles. Wait But Why? I guarantee, I know you well enough. Without a doubt, you're going to love this. I'm actually excited for you to read some of this, this guy's blog post. Mm -hmm. So he writes blog. Do you want to give me a synopsis? Yeah. I'll, he, he, so I'll give you a synopsis. Actually, I'll tell you a story, which will tell you how much I am. In 2016, I went to a blog meetup where other readers from his blogs were just meeting up. And I literally just went to a random restaurant. And I said, hey, I am here for the Wait But Why table. And I hanged out with like 20 people who are also fans of his writing. So he writes about all sorts of different things. But the thing that he does really well is he goes really deep into a topic. For example, like he talks about Elon Musk and what Elon Musk is doing with Tesla, but he goes like very deep into the reasoning of why like electric vehicles are that. Or he talks about like, he has a blog post that I was just thinking about. He calls it why generation Wapi, uh, why is unhappy. And he has this like graphics of like, you know, we all think we're special. You know, we, we all grew up with our parents telling us, you know, like everyone around my age or your age saying like, you're a genius, you know, like you are, you're like so smart and all this. Like we all think we're this special character. And then we start compare, like we, once we are in the real world, we start comparing ourselves to other people. But the lens that you see other people is either through Instagram, LinkedIn, and like these social media where everyone else is fabricating their life to be much better than it is. 
So now you're looking at, you're looking left and right and everyone seems so high up, which is actually not where they are, which causes you to be even more like, oh, down on yourself. Um, it's, 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 he's a very interesting, he's just like any topic that he writes about, you really understand mm -hmm. the topic deeply. I'll, I'll send you some blog posts afterwards. Interesting, yeah, I'll check it out. Yeah, he's, he's very popular among like, literally a lot of the public intellectuals and a lot of like these public CEOs and so on too. Anyways, I want to finish off. That doesn't, that's, that's, no, that's a good thing. Yeah. That's not, you don't want me to, you don't want me to rebut that. Yeah. No, no, rebut that. No, I, I, I agree with you. It doesn't necessarily <laughs> mean that it's a good, right? Yeah. I'm very skeptical if he's, uh, if his crowds that he has pleased are the CEOs. Um, well, I guess it depends on which kind of CEOs. There are some CEOs that you respect. Such as, there's, there's a lot of CEOs that I respect. Such okay. as whom? Like I think Elon Musk. Really? You don't? I mean, to a certain extent, but I will have some disagreements with you on that one for sure. All right. I think we need to be careful about the time. We have probably <laughs> spent an hour and a half. Sounds like we should just have another discussion because we we're kind of going all over the place. Let's let's let, sure. let's we wrap can, up this we can, conversation. We can yeah. have we can have an economics discussion later. Later, yeah. Let's let's wrap up this one. So, did you share all your three? I think a good way to finish is another quote, uh, with another one of the Latin quotes. Uh, is there any left? Let me give me a moment. No problem. Let me think of something for you to leave you with. All right, don't think too hard. All right, just I want something from the heart. I don't want something practiced off your phone. Um, I don't want you to be Googling top Latin quotes of all time. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I'll give you a more feel-good one about why we um, perhaps like analyze history. Uh-huh. This is by Herodotus, and he was writing about how the first history was written in the hope of preserving from decay the remembrance of what men have been. And for that reason, the history of man is not one of blood and death, but also one of honor, achievement, kindness, memory, and civilization. Wow. So I think, Expanded yeah, going, going back to like what we were talking about, reading about um, the, uh, the difficulties that other people have gone through in the past and reflecting on that is also, I think, like an, exer an exercise of, um, in a way, not, not necessarily an exercise of stoicism, but an exercise of being uh, kind of more reflective and thinking about things in the hopes of, you know, achieving what we've been talking about and hinting at throughout this podcast is trying to become more at peace with yourself and with the, um, the factors in your life that you can't control that are conspiring to make you a more anxious and miserable person. But if you reflect on the struggles of others, whether in the past or current, and you approach it, um, with some aspects of stoicism, I think that you can be a happier person. That is a beautiful way to finish this conversation. And yeah, I think if anyone is listening, which 
chances are, I mean, no one is going to listen. This is just a conversation between you and Nobody I. Nobody listens but to you. If, if someone does listen and they haven't <laughs> looked into stoicism, I think stoicism is definitely a good thing to get into and just understand the big topics around it. Anyways, I mean, I appreciate your time. I, right. I enjoyed this conversation. It was one of those things that I was just completely focused on what you're saying. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, you heard what our thoughts are. I would love to hear what's yours. Go to anchor.fm slash that random thought and send us a voice note letting us know what you think.